Uh, first, I would like to wish all of you a blessed Feast of the Cross. This is a great feast in our church, uh, and I hope that its blessings will remain with you this weekend and beyond. Uh, for tonight, I would like to talk to you about the marvelous history of the Holy Cross. The marvelous history of the Holy Cross. As you know, the Coptic Orthodox Church celebrates two Feasts of the Cross in her liturgical year. The first Feast of the Cross is on 217, or September 27 or 28, and this is the Feast of the Discovery and Exaltation of the Cross. And this is actually a three-day feast, so we're going to celebrate tomorrow, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. It's a three-day feast. The second Feast of the Cross in the Church's liturgical year is the Recovery of the Cross, which is on the Coptic month, Param Hotep 10, which translates to March 19 in our Gregorian calendar. Uh, and this is uh, the feast in which we commemorate the restoration of the cross after it was stolen from Jerusalem. And I'll talk a little bit more about this. By way of introduction, the fact that the Church gives us two feasts of the cross illustrates how important the cross is uh, in our lives. The cross is one symbol that has been accepted at all times, in all places, by all people who call themselves Christian. But more importantly, for Orthodox Christians, the cross is more than just a symbol. For Orthodox Christians, the cross is the medium by which the healing and saving power of our Lord Jesus Christ are manifested. And to show you uh, what I mean by this, I want to read a quote from Ava Isaac the Syrian, one of the great monastic fathers, spiritual fathers of the church. This is what he wrote about the cross. He said, The moment this form is depicted on a wall or on a board, the form of a cross, or is fashioned out of some kind of gold or silver and the like, or carved out of wood, immediately it takes on and is filled with the divine power, and so it becomes a place of God's Shekinah, even more so than the ark. What he's saying is any time you take a common material like wood or gold or silver or anything and you make it into the sign of a cross, that thing that was made now has the divine power of the cross. So something like this clearly is very, very holy and very powerful. And for this reason, this feast is a good time for us to meditate and reflect on the power of the cross in our lives. For tonight, God willing, I would like to focus only on the history of the cross itself. Uh, what happened to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ after the crucifixion? Where is it today? And God willing, tomorrow we will talk more about the spiritual aspect of the cross. So tonight will be history, and tomorrow will be the spiritual aspect. After our Lord's glorious resurrection... The Jews took the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the crosses of the two thieves and they hid it in an underground reservoir in Golgotha. Now an underground reservoir in ancient times was basically like a hole in the ground that was used to store water or other things. So after our Lord was resurrected, they took the crosses and they put them in this underground hole and then they covered them with uh, rubble and stones to make sure that the Christians had no access to the cross. And this was the way things were for almost 300 years. For 300 years, from the time of the Lord's resurrection 
until the time of its discovery, the cross was in a hole in the ground, covered by stones and rubble. Now, during these 300 years, the cross was used as an insult to the Christians by the Romans. They would call Christians things like cross worshippers, and even more shamefully, they would say things like, the Christians worship the thing they deserve, meaning that Christians deserve the, the shameful death of the cross, and so they worship it. At the same time, however, Christians used the cross as a symbol of blessing and a source of power. And this is made very clear uh, in the words of one of the early church, uh, uh, he's not an early church father, but he is one of the early Christians, his name is uh, Tertullian. And look what he says about how the cross was used during those 300 years. He says, we Christians wear out our foreheads with the sign of the cross at every step and every movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light the lamps on the couch, on the seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon our forehead the sign of the cross. And this is a wonderful lesson of faith, that the early Christians did not do anything without first making the sign of the cross on their foreheads. And it's a good lesson for all of us today whenever we embark on any endeavor, whenever we get in our cars, whenever we take an exam, whenever we do anything for which we ask the Lord's help, it is beneficial and very helpful to us to make the sign of the cross as the early Christians did. Now the fact that the Christians made the sign of the cross on their forehead is actually significant because the very uh, drawing of a sign on a person's forehead has of significance in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and beyond. And I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, in, in Genesis 4, we know that after Cain killed his brother, the righteous Abel, God made a mark on his forehead. And this mark told everyone that Cain had murdered someone, and it was also a mark that let people know that Cain himself should not be murdered. God had protected him by this mark. In the New Testament, uh, for example, uh, in Revelation chapters 13, 14, and 22, we know that the people of God had the mark of God on their foreheads, and the people of the Antichrist had the mark of the Antichrist on their foreheads. So it is clear from these references that a mark on the forehead is a way to identify a person, to show who this person belongs to, what this person believes. And this is something that we saw in Revelation 22 when it says that the people of God receive the mark of God, the very name of God, on their foreheads. And this is also something clear in our blessed Orthodox Church in the rites of the mystery or the sacrament of baptism. Many of us don't remember when we were baptized because we were infants. But if you ever attended a baptism, you will notice that before the priest baptizes a child, he will make the sign of the cross on the child using simple oil. And then after the child has been uh, baptized and he is sealed, he is chrismated, he will make the sign of the cross again on the forehead and elsewhere on the body of the child. And the early fathers of the church, they saw this practice and they explained it this way. They said, before a person was baptized, he was the servant of the world, the servant of the emperor, the servant of the devil. 
And servants back then were marked by their foreheads. And so when they came to baptize the infant or the person, they would remove the symbol of evil and they would put instead a symbol of the cross. And that's why when you see Abuna uh, crossing someone on the forehead during the mystery of unction, during baptism, or even when someone comes to Abuna and says, uh, I need your prayers, please anoint me with the oil from the monastery, he will anoint you on the forehead. This is showing that you are sealed as a Christian. You are identified as a Christian. You belong to God. So the fact that they made the cross on their foreheads is very significant. Now you may wonder, if the early Christians made the sign of the cross on their forehead, why do we now make the sign of the cross uh, throughout our entire body? When did that change? Uh, The answer uh, to that question is it changed around the 9th century. Around the 9th century. What happened in the 9th century was there was a controversy in the church where some of the Christians who were influenced by uh, the Jewish people and, and some Muslim ideas, they said... It is wrong for anyone to have icons in the church. It's wrong. And so what they did is they took all of the icons and they destroyed the icons. And unfortunately, during this time, the church lost many precious and valuable icons. And so the only cross that was allowed, even if there were no icons, was the sign of the cross. They made an exception for the sign of the cross. And so the people who were making the sign of the cross, they wanted to make it more pronounced. They wanted to make it more visible. So instead of crossing their foreheads, they started crossing their whole bodies. And that change came uh, in the 9th century. Now during the time in which the cross was given for those 300 years, what was the status of Christianity? I mention this because it is relevant to our discussion. During this time, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire. It was illegal. But there were times when it was tolerated. And these were times when the emperors thought that it would be politically beneficial to allow Christians to worship because they wanted to keep the peace of the empire. But for 300 years, until the discovery of the cross, Christianity was illegal. And that's why many of the early Christians are called catacomb Christians. They had to pray underground. They had to pray hidden in houses. They weren't allowed to worship in public. Christianity was illegal. And as a result of the illegality of Christianity, we of course experienced waves of persecutions in the Roman Empire. We know that the Emperor Diocletian and Decius and many others uh, killed many martyrs in Egypt and elsewhere. Uh, It is said, one of the fathers of the church said, uh, that Egyptian people alone suffered 800,000 deaths during the persecutions of the Roman Roman Empire. And of course, 800,000, almost a million people was a a very large number considering the population of the world back then was much less than it is now. So Christianity was illegal, and as a result, there were persecutions. But we come to 312 AD, and we see a turning point. A turning point from Christianity being illegal to something else. Here's how this came about. Constantine and another ruler by the name of Maxentius. They were both rulers in the Roman Empire. They were sharing power. They were at war for control of the empire. And Maxentius and Constantine were actually brothers-in-law. So they were related. But nonetheless, they were at war for control of the Roman Empire. Maxentius was very safe and protected in the walls of Rome. 
he had the army inside with him, and he was seemingly very safe. Constantine, on the other hand, was outside, in a very difficult position, uh, outside the walls of Rome. And at this point, there was a great miracle. What happened was, Constantine saw a very large, luminous, fiery cross that was superimposed against the sun. He looked in the sky and he saw this. Afterwards, he heard the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ telling him, take the cross and make it a symbol on the banners of your army. And then finally, our Lord told him, by this sign, you will conquer. By this sign, you will conquer. So Constantine listened to our Lord, and on the very next day, he easily defeated Maxentius. And the result of this, the consequences of this victory was, within one year, Christianity, for the very first time, became a legal religion in the Roman Empire. It was not the official religion, but it was a legal religion. So Christians finally, after 300 years, could practice uh, their religion and worship uh, openly. And this, of course, ended 300 years of persecution against the Christians. Now, immediately after this event, we have a wonderful event, which is actually the subject of t- tomorrow's feast. It's what we're celebrating tonight, tomorrow, Monday, and Tuesday. And that is the discovery of the Holy Cross. The Empress Helen, who was Constantine's mother, uh, she set out to Jerusalem to find all of the sites that had significance for Christians and to restore them. That was her mission. And amazingly, uh, she was a saintly woman, she was a very devout Christian, who built many churches and donated most of her wealth to the poor. It was said wherever she went, she took care of the poor. She gave them the best of what she had, and she herself lived a very modest and humble life. And amazingly, she was 78 years old when she traveled from Rome to Jerusalem to find the Holy Cross. Now, Empress Helen, you may recognize from the story of St. Diniana. St. Diniana, as you know, was martyred by the Roman governor, and uh, she was martyred in the palace. Uh, After her martyrdom, it was the Empress Helen who traveled to Egypt to find uh, where St. Diniana was martyred, and she is the one that built the great church for St. Diniana on the site of the palace. So Empress Helen should be familiar to those of you as a church. Now, when the Empress Helen came to Jerusalem, she found only rubble and ruins. And this was so because of a prophecy that our Lord Jesus Christ had made in the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. His disciples uh, were with him, and uh, I'll read the Gospel. It says, Then as he went out of the temple, the great temple of Solomon, the Jewish uh, center of worship, One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And this prophecy uh, concerned the destruction of Jerusalem and the great temple of Solomon, which occurred almost 40 years after our Lord's resurrection. What happened was uh, the emperor Hadrian, uh, he came to Jerusalem with the Roman army and he completely razed it, destroyed it, destroyed the great temple, and 
he did his best to destroy the memory of the Jewish people, and instead of Jerusalem, he built a Roman town in its place. He also built a temple to the Roman goddess, the pagan goddess Venus, on the site of Golgotha, where our Lord Jesus Christ was built. So 300 years later, Jerusalem does not exist. There's a Roman town in its place. And on the actual site where our Lord was crucified, there is a pagan temple to the Roman goddess Venus. Now, we can uh, speak a little bit about the discovery uh, of the Holy Sepulchre. The Holy Sepulchre uh, is, the, is the phrase we use to describe the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I have here a picture from Jerusalem that you can see, a picture of the Holy Sepulchre with the monk uh, praying uh, in the midst of it. What happened was, uh, the Empress Helen came to uh, the site uh, of the Roman Sepulchre, and it was covered with rocks and rubble and garbage. And the bishop who was there, he prayed on the site. His name was Bishop Macarius. And after he prayed, the laborers started smelling a very sweet and fragrant odor coming out of the ground. And as they dug closer and closer to the source of this uh, fragrant odor, they found the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was one discovery that happened at the hands of Queen Helen. Concerning the cross itself, they uh, started to dig uh, more and more, and they finally came to the reservoir where they discovered the three crosses. They found the three crosses, they found the nails, and they found the inscriptions. Uh, you remember that Pontius Pilate had put inscriptions on the top of the crosses. But the inscriptions were not attached to the crosses. They were in a separate place. So they found all these things, but they had no way of telling which one belonged to our Lord and which uh, belonged to the thieves that were crucified with him. So the Empress uh, Helen asked Bishop Macarius, uh, how can we discern uh, which of these crosses belongs to the Lord? And Bishop Macarius noticed a funeral procession uh, that was uh, proceeding nearby. And so he took the three crosses and he laid each one of them on the dead body that was being uh, processed. And so when he did this with the first cross, there was no result. He did it with the second cross, still no result. And finally, when he did it with the third cross, the person who had been dead was raised to life. And at this point, something wonderful happened. Bishop Macarius took the cross, and he raised it high above his head. And the Empress Helen, 78 years old, ruler of the world, she bowed down before the Holy Cross. And this, what happened in this juncture, this is called the exaltation of the cross. When the cross was lifted high in the air and all the people worshipped it. And then after that, the people who were surrounding the scene, they started chanting Kyrie Eleison. And this is actually the source of the rite of processions in the Orthodox Church. Today, for example, we had a procession around the church. What did we do? We took a cross, we lifted it high in the air, and we said, Kyrie Eleison. The Orthodox, the early Christians, they took this, and this uh, was, uh, uh, it was copied, and it was uh, symbolized in the processions that occur in the church. Uh, so this was the exaltation of the cross. After the cross was found, it was put in Jerusalem, and there was a great celebration of the Feast of the Cross that occurred for many years. 
And we have one account of the speech from a Spanish nun by the name of Egeria. Uh, she wrote one of the earliest accounts of pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And she described the Feast of Inconia. The Feast of Inconia. In this feast, believers from all over the world would come to Jerusalem where the cross was at 6 a.m. And they would read all of the gospel accounts concerning the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the middle of the day, they would bring out the cross, the holy relic, which was encased in silver. The bishop would hold it in his two hands, and he would be surrounded by deacons, and the people would come one by one to take the blessing of the cross. And this happened from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Does this sound familiar to anyone? This is almost exactly what the Holy Church, the Holy Orthodox Church does on Good Friday. This is one of the foundations of the prayers of Good Friday. Because in the early church, the Feast of Inconia and Good Friday had the same rites. And so when you see in our church that we have the crucifixion in the middle of the church, and uh, we have a, a symbol of the body of our Lord and the crucifix there, and we read all gospel accounts, not just one, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are doing something very similar to what the early Christians did in the Feast of Inconia and in their Good Friday. Needless to say, this was a major yearly pilgrimage for Christians around the world. And it was so much so important that Ajuria wrote, he thinks himself guilty of a grave sin who during this period does not attend with great solemnity. So anyone who didn't go, anyone who didn't travel to Jerusalem for this feast would consider himself guilty of a grave sin. Now, after the discovery of the cross and after it was moved to Jerusalem, the Empress Helen sent a portion of it to a city that was called Byzantium, and this city later became Constantinople. And here in this picture, I have uh, shown you the, sil the portion of the cross that is encased in silver. This today is in Jerusalem, and uh, believers are able to see it once a year during Good Friday alone. The bishop will bring it out, and the believers can take a blessing. And in the middle, you see that cross in the middle of the uh, icon? That's, contain that's the portion that contains the uh, actual holy wood of the cross. There were other portions of the cross uh, that were sent to other places. Uh, one of these places was the Church of Santa Croce, which is Latin for the Church of the Holy Cross, in Jerusalem, Florence, Italy. Uh, this was uh, a church uh, in which one of the uh, portions of the Holy Cross was sent, and it also had a portion of the right thief's cross, St. Demas. His cross was there. Uh, it had a bone that represents the finger of St. Thomas, uh, when St. Thomas put his finger inside the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. It had a portion of the wood of the pillar that the Romans uh, attached our Lord Jesus Christ to before they as they scorched him. So it has a piece of wood uh, from that. It has two thorns from the crown of thorns. It has, uh, I believe, one of the nails. And it also has the inscription, uh, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. It's there in Florence, Italy, uh, available for anyone uh, who makes the trip to see. Now you might wonder, why is the cross being sent to all these different places? After its discovery, uh, there were many invaders who sought to steal it and sought to take it for their own. 
And so the Christians at the time, they saw it fit, that they divided it, and they sent pieces of it to different parts of the world to ensure that the cross would not be lost. In this slide, we see this pillar, which is called Constantine's Pillar, uh, to commemorate the, uh, found, found the establishment of the city of Constantinople. He built this massive 115-foot pillar using Egyptian stone. Uh, and in the pillar, in the base of the pillar, there is portions of the crosses. Uh, there is, uh, traditionally believed, the hatchet used by Noah to build the great ark. Uh, it also uh, has the alabaster flask of St. Mary Magdalene, and it also traditionally is believed to have the um, baskets of the miraculous loaves. Now, this pillar still exists in, in Constantinople, which is now in Turkey, called Istanbul, uh, but unfortunately the base of this pillar is 16 feet underneath the ground. So no one knows exactly what's inside the pillar, but when Constantine built it, uh, he said this is what, what, what went inside the base. And as I said, throughout the centuries, many smaller pieces of the Holy Cross were sent to different places throughout the world. The largest portion remained in Jerusalem until 614 AD. And this, what I'm going to talk about now, is actually the subject of the second Feast of the Cross, the one that we celebrate in March. What happened was, uh, the Romans and the Persians were at war. And so the Romans defeated the Persians. So the Persians were now retreating back to their land, and they went past Jerusalem. When they came to Jerusalem, they destroyed the Christian churches, and they massacred the Christian people. And they took the Holy Cross, and they stole it. And they made their way with the cross back to uh, Persia. And this was actually predicted in one of the sayings of the Desert Fathers. There was a monk called Abba John who prophesied and predicted this years before it happened. So in 627 AD, here's how the cross started to be restored. The Roman emperor, by the name of Heraclius, went to war against the Persian ruler. And... Uh, there was an account that said uh, that Heraclius was on his horse and he was going at a very fast pace, charging the Persians, and the Persians were shooting him with arrows and the arrows were bouncing off of him. And finally he came and he killed the Persian ruler and he took back the, the relic of the Holy Cross from the Persians. In 628, he returned this relic to the Cross of Holy Wisdom, the Agea Sophia, in Constantinople, and in 629, he returned this relic back to Jerusalem. And there's a very interesting story about this. It says that the emperor himself wanted to carry the cross into the church in Jerusalem. So as he was walking into the church, he felt an invisible force that stopped him. And he couldn't walk any longer. And so he asked the patriarch, why am I not able to enter into the church? And the patriarch said, because you're wearing the kingly vestments. You're dressed as a king. You have to enter humbly. So he took off all of his vestments and he entered as a servant carrying the Holy Cross and finally that invisible force was no longer stopping him. After this time, the Holy Cross remained protected in Jerusalem uh, even until the Muslim invaders ruled the city uh, in the 11th century. In 1009, uh, one of the caliphs of Egypt by the name of Hakim, he burned down the church of the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Cross at this point was taken by Christians and it was hidden. 
And since that time, it has not been restored. This is the largest portion. It still remains hidden today. Only God knows where it, where it is. But it is no longer in Jerusalem. However, we do have many smaller fragments of the cross that are all over the world, uh, as I mentioned to you. And this is something that St. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote. Uh, he said, the whole earth is full of the relics of the cross of Christ. Now, because of the time, and uh, I don't want to keep you too late, uh, I would like to discuss uh, these uh, points with you tomorrow, God willing. Uh, we spoke about the discovery of the cross as a historical event. That actually, in some year, there was a person by the name of Constantine who did this in St. Helen, uh, who found the cross. And that's fine. It is a historical event. But this event is also a great spiritual event in our lives. Uh, the cross uh, hidden among the rocks and rubble within us, in our hearts. Uh, us, uh, we searching for the cross and also how we can exalt the cross in our lives. God willing, this will be the subject for tomorrow, uh, but today, as I mentioned, I only wanted to speak about the his historical uh, perspective of the discovery of the cross. I, I pray that uh, all of you are filled with the blessings of this feast, uh, and I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow, and glory be to God forever. Amen.